Our second lesson is a continuation of the first, also from the Gospel of John. I'm reading from the New English Bible, chapter 9, verse 13, following. The man who had been blind was brought before the Pharisees, as it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the paste and opened his eyes. The Pharisees now asked him by what means he had gained his sight. The man told them, he spread a paste on my eyes, then I washed, and now I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this fellow is no man of God, he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how could such signs come from a sinful man? So they took different sides. Then they continued to question him. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He answered, he is a prophet. The Jews would not believe that the man had been blind and gained his sight until they had summoned his parents and questioned them. Is this man your son? Do you say that he was born blind? How is it that he can now see? The parents replied, we know that he is our son and that he was born blind. But how it is that he can now see, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents gave this answer because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jewish authorities had already agreed that anyone who acknowledged Jesus as Messiah should be banned from the synagogue. This is why the parents said, he is of age, ask him. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Not long ago, I read a thing by Helen Keller in which uh, she had been asked the question. You know, of course, that Helen Keller was that remarkable person who, having been blinded and deaf uh, from the very first uh, weeks of her life, uh, had uh, by incredible uh, fortitude, and by the gracious instruction of a kind teacher, had a world open unto her and gave a great testimony of overcoming handicaps. She spoke about what she would do if she were given three days in which she could see. And Helen Keller, never having any memories of being able to see, said this, on the first day, she would like to see the people whose kindness and companionship had made her life worth living. On the second day, Miss Keller said that she would get up early to see the dawn, and she would visit a museum to learn of man's progress. She would also visit an art museum to probe people's souls by studying the pictures and the sculpture work which they did. That at night, she would visit the theater and see the grace of some great ballerina. On the third day and the last day, she would again get up at dawn to see again the new revelations of its beauty. And then she would visit the haunts of men where they work. She would stand on busy street corners trying to understand something of the daily lives of people by looking into their faces and reading what is written there. She would also want to see suffering so that she would feel compassion. She would like to tour New York, see the slums and the factories and the parks and the children at play. On the last evening, she would like to see a funny play to appreciate the overtones of comedy in the human spirit. The interesting thing to note is her desire 
to see the common things about us in life. Now, having read these words of Helen Keller's, I thought how all those 2,000 years ago, when this amazing incident takes place that is recorded for us in the Gospel of John, we see so much of just what she has been talking about here. We see the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ as he sees a man who has been blind from his birth. Jesus' disciples wished to initiate a discussion. It was, of course, thought by all of the, uh, most of the Old Testament Christians that suffering must in, indeed be a result of sin. Job is an exception to this, and I mean by Christians those who look forward to the birth of the Messiah. But here they are wondering what has happened. Did this man's parents sin and that cause him to be blind? And there have been, of course, of course, cases in which the sins of parents have inflicted suffering and misery upon their children. Not long ago, I read of a poor little baby that was born with some hideous deformity as a result of a parent that had been uh, taking LSD. And that's a, a terrible thing. Well, they wondered maybe if this man's soul had lived before he had been born. And if somehow his soul in another world might not have sinned. That seems to be a thought. Jesus corrects all of this by saying that neither hath this man sinned nor his parents that he was born blind. But Jesus says this has happened so that the works of God should be made manifest to him, to this man. Now it's interesting to me that here where there are many, many blind people, our Lord Jesus should select this particular blind man and bring his healing to bear upon his life. But as his story begins to unfold, we will see marvelous things from this incredibly brave and testy little creature. And you watch him in his answers to the Pharisees who were the great critics of our Lord Jesus. Jesus, of course, told his disciples that he had work to do and that he was going to perform that work while the day lasted. There is an urgency about uh, Christian work which we must not lose sight of. And each one of us will find that life speeds away rapidly and that our work for God requires haste and urgency and determination. Now Jesus does a strange thing. He makes a, he spat on the ground and he made a little mud out of the spittle, a sort of a spittle, a sort of paste, and he smeared it on this man's eye. And he told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Now, our Episcopal brethren who believe in apostolic succession know that the word apostello, which means sent, uh, has to do with something of apostolic succession. So they read that into this passage of scripture. 
And uh, some rather extreme people about baptism believe that the washing of the water is significant about baptism. It's interesting to me. I was thinking about three people yesterday, three blind men that Jesus had healed. One man, Bartimaeus, he simply touched and he was made to be able to see. Another man we are told about, Jesus touched him and he was able to see, but he saw men like trees walking. And then this third man, he, he makes this uh, clay and smears on his face. Now, if you had had these three blind men give their testimony, the word that's in right now is share, if they had shared their experience, I'm sure that one man would have said, well, if you ever want sight by Jesus, then the thing that you must do is simply let him touch you one time. That's what happened to me. He touched me once, and now I see, and I know that's the way it ought to be done. The second man would say, no, you got it all wrong. He touches you one time, and then you don't see things straight, but you need a second touch. And when you get the second touch, that's the way it is. And the third man said, no, you're all wrong. What you need for him to do is to make a little mud and then smear it on your face, on your eyes, and then go wash it out of your eyes, and then you'll be able to see. Now, you see, you already got three denominations. You got the, <laughs> the one-touch crowd and the two-touch crowd and the mud-in-the-eye crowd. <laughs> and that's why I'm asking these young people about their denomination. The important thing is that you can see. And this is what's going to happen here, and this is what's going to take place. The man came back, and he was seen. Yesterday, I was happening uh, to think about Christian literature. I cannot recall a time in my own ministry in which I have seen so many Bible bookstores and so many stores in which Christian literature is sold. In Black Mountain, there is Betty's of Black Mountain, a, a Christian bookstore where you can find uh, Christian literature. In Asheville, the Victory Book Room. Uh, over in Weaverville, the Presbyterian Journal Bookstore. There are many of these that are cropping up. I noticed in traveling across the country this past week, I saw in airports copies of the Living Bible and racks of Christian books. Now, all of this literature has a significant thing to say to me because much of it is speaking about the more of the Christian life. The more of the Christian life. People yearning for a deeper walk with God, for a personal knowledge of Christ, for the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, and for lives that are yielded to his conscious lordship. This is the dominant theme that I seem to see in so much of the Christian literature that is being produced now and being sold. There's a hunger, a hunger after a deeper walk with God. Well, this whole Gospel of John is built around miracles which Jesus performs as signs to authenticate who he is, the Messiah. There is the touching of water and turning it into wine that tells us of the difference that Christ makes. An insipid, tasteless life can suddenly be made exciting and transforming by his power. Uh, there is the woman at the well who thirsted after water. And Jesus speaks to her about the water of life that springs up inside the one who trusts in him as the Messiah. 
There is a hungry multitude fed by a little boy's loaves and fishes. And there are a lot of little boys here this morning. And you have loaves and you have fishes. You have possibilities in your life that are just like loaves and fishes that can be touched by Jesus and used greatly to the glory of God. And let me remind you of that. That little fellow gave what he had to Jesus, and he blessed it and fed a whole multitude with it. And that's a great testimony of yielding to Jesus Christ. And then, of course, uh, we come to the place here. After Jesus had had a long discussion with the Pharisees who have now arisen in opposition to him, Jesus does this which had been predicted of the Messiah. He makes a blind man to be able to see. The interesting thing about this miracle is there is no way you can explain this one away. Uh, you see, this man was blind from birth, and he was known throughout his community as one who had been born blind. No question about it. They had seen him begging all of these years, and the fact was undeniable the man had been born blind, but now he could see. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him, that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. A great writer can take an event and conversation that comes out of that event and make drama from it. And here, this writer John takes this event, this miracle which takes place, and he brings out great belief and faith in Jesus the Messiah. Therefore they said unto him, How were your eyes open? And so he gives them his testimony. And then the Pharisees come in. This is interesting. They are representative, of course, of the religious establishment. I've often wondered what happens when a man who has had a tremendous conversion experience walks through the halls of some of the theological seminaries and talks with some of the professors there and some of the other people who are studying for the ministry with a radical experience with Jesus Christ that has transformed his whole life, I'd rather have one simple man with an experience with Jesus Christ than to have the most learned person you could ever drum up to tell me about Jesus. It takes experimental knowledge and experiential faith in him. Uh, this man wouldn't have been able to tell you about the documentary hypothesis of the Pentateuch. Uh, he couldn't tell you about Deutero and Trito and Quarto Isaiah. Uh, uh, he couldn't have discussed these things with you, but he could tell you what happened when Jesus touched him. This is what people are yearning for. This is what they want is the crucial encounter that makes the tremendous difference. And so they are baffled by him, the Pharisees are. They are baffled by him, and they try to shake his faith in what has happened. And uh, they enter into this dialogue with the man. First, they want to find fault because Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day. Now, the Pharisees saw nothing irreligious about pulling a sheep that had fallen into a pit on the Sabbath day out of the pit. But it was a terrible thing for Jesus to heal this blind man on the Sabbath day. That's how, uh, how they were boxed in by what they thought. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And he said unto them, 
He put clay on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Therefore, said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God because he does not keep the Sabbath day. Now look, look at this man. He's very, uh, very strong. They said unto the blind man, what sayest thou of him? And you know what he said? He said, he is a prophet. You see, he is learning. He is coming into a knowledge of Jesus. Jesus came to be a prophet, priest, and king. This is the beginning of an awakening faith in Jesus. By the way, this blind man was one Jesus picked out and healed. Uh, there, there was not any apparent demonstration of faith other than the fact that he promptly obeyed Jesus on the part of this blind man. But the Jews would not believe uh, concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him. And they asked the parents, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? His parents answered them, We know this is our son. We know that he was born blind. But now they become fearful and craven. But by what means he can now see, we do not know. Or who has opened his eyes, we know not. And then they put it on him. He is of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. There are many young people today who are giving a testimony for Jesus that puts a lot of older people to shame. There are many young people that are giving a testimony for Jesus that puts a lot of older people to shame. They, they were afraid, the parents were. They were afraid that they would be put out of the synagogue as we see is going to take place with this man here. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if any man did confess that Jesus was the Messiah, he should be put out of the synagogue. Then they called again the man that was blind, and they said to him, Give God the praise we know that this man is a sinner. They attribute to Jesus that he is a sinner. The blind man, now look, there's a little humor almost in this. Uh, the blind man answered, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then, he, then said they to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you did not hear. Why would you hear it again? Will you be his disciples? <laughs> well, you know the answer to that. Then they were angry. They reviled him. They said unto him, We are Moses' disciples. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he came. Then the blind man says back to them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing that ye know not from where he has come, and yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear a sinner, but, it, but, but if any man be a worshiper of God and does his will, him God heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man had opened the eyes of the blind? If this man was not of God, he could do nothing. And you know what they did? They said to him, you were born in sin to the blind man, and they cast him out of the synagogue. I'd rather be outside of the church with Jesus than inside the church without him. 
This happened, and there may become a, a time in which it will occur again. They cast him out. And here occurs one of the most touching incidents in all of Scripture to me. They cast this man out of the synagogue, and so far as I know, this is the only place in the gospel records where Jesus ever went out looking for someone. But Jesus went out looking for this man, and we are told about it here, that when Jesus heard that he had been cast out, when Jesus heard that they had put him out of the church or out of the synagogue, when he had found him, he said unto him, Do you believe in the Son of God? Earlier he had simply said of Jesus he was a prophet. Do you believe on the Son of God? Look at what this honest man says. He said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talks with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Isn't that wonderful? If you are honest to use the light that God gives you, he will give you further light. And this he did with this man and his testimony here, and how we have been blessed down through the ages by it. This morning I talked on the telephone with a friend of mine in Miami, and I said, uh, are you getting ready for Sunday school? And she said, yes, we're about to leave the house now to go to church. They go to the Granada Presbyterian Church in Coral Gables. And I said, when you get to church this morning, I want you to tell Hiram Cassidy Summerall that I'm going to tell about him in church up here today. <laughs> and uh, she said, he'll be delighted to know that, and I'll be sure to tell him. Hiram Cassidy Summerall is better known as Cass Summerall. And Cass Summerall and I first met in the winter of 1956. He was a captain for Delta Airlines. And uh, after a morning devotional in his church, he invited me to go with him fishing, and I had gone with him out on his boat. Now, I saw Cass Summerall last summer in a hotel in Asheville, and I thought about him and about what had happened since that first time that I met him back in the winter of 1956. It's pretty easy to get a preacher down in Florida in the winter. And uh, I was down there in 1956 in, in February, and Cass Summerall and I had gotten together. Well, an interesting thing had happened. He was an elder in that church at that time that he took me fishing. He was an elder in the church... He had been brought up in a God-fearing home. His father was a Presbyterian elder. His mother was a very saintly person. But he himself was a church officer for 20 years and a tither for 15 years before he ever had a personal experience with Jesus Christ. And Cass Summerall tells about it in this way. In 1961, in December... He was flying a DC-7 into one of the largest airports in the southeast. The co-pilot was, was actually flying the airplane, and he had received instructions from the controller in the, radar, the radar controller 
telling them that they were being vectored according to certain lines, and it was strictly a procedural uh, instrument approach that they were going through. Cass said that there was a lot of smoke and fog coming up from the ground, and he kept looking through the windshield to see the end of the runway. But he said to his horror, there suddenly loomed in front of him huge trees that were coming at them very fast, and that actually the aircraft, instead of being where it was supposed to have been, was a mile to the, to the left of the runway and three miles away from it. All he knew was that the trees were coming, and with one swish of his hand, he pushed all four throttles forward and gave full power to the DC-7 and came back on the controls, and the airplane came up into an impossible position and started crashing into trees but cleared the tops of them. He said in those few seconds that it was like eternity. When they could think again, he said that he could hear the roar of the engine. He realized that they were still airborne. He realized that the action that he had taken was only an action that he thought would cushion the inevitable crash of the aircraft. But they were still aloft. They checked damage control. One engine was immediately shut down. There was a gaping hole in the right wing of the aircraft. They were able to make it in and land the plane, and not a soul was hurt on board the aircraft. He said that, of course, he was shaken about it. But for the next two years, during the night time, that he would spend a good bit of time thinking about why God had spared him. The aircraft engineers had said that there was no way that that particular airplane could tolerate such stress as it was put through, that it should have buckled and come apart, but it didn't. And Cass began to wonder why it was that God had saved his life in that split second. And as a result of it, through two years of searching, all the time an officer of the church, all the time a tither, he said that he heard Dr. Manfred Gutsky speaking of the new birth. And he said, I must have heard that story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3 again and again, but I never really applied it to myself. And then it suddenly dawned upon me that I had no personal consciousness of the lordship of Christ in my life. He said, after I heard Dr. Gutsky one night on the radio, I simply got down on my knees and said to Jesus Christ that I would forever be unashamed to confess him as my Lord, that I would learn about him from his word, and that I would do whatever he told me to do and follow him any way he wanted me to go. Well, Hiram Cassidy Summerall today flies the big DC-10s that Delta Airlines has. But when you go out of Miami to Chicago on his run, if you want him to tell you about his own life and his relationship to Christ, he will tell you about a crucial encounter, an encounter that was more than just going through the church route, 
an encounter that brought him face to face with the risen living Lord and that has had a transforming change upon his entire life. His life would have been considered the model of the American dream, excellent health, lovely wife, fine children, big salary, but he didn't have Christ. And his testimony to Jesus Christ today is like the blind man's testimony of how out of spiritual blindness he came into the reality of a faith that governs his day-by-day -day walk with the Lord. Let us stand in prayer. <clears throat> Our Father, it is a great comfort to us to know that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. That he is watching and he is looking. And just as he saw that blind man and knew his needs, so he sees us and knows our needs as well. And, oh God, if there is present here in this sanctuary or listening to my voice, any person who has hungered and thirsted for that crucial encounter with Christ, and yet has not come to that place, will you lead that person this day to surrender his or her life over to the conscious lordship of Jesus, to feel happy and comfortable with his presence, and to learn about him from the gospels of his enabling grace to govern and guide each one of us through life. We thank you for Cass Summerall, we thank you for this blind man who was made to see. We thank you for John who recorded this blessed record of the life of our Lord. And we pray that from what we have learned, we may apply it to our own hearts and lives so that our wives and children, so that the people who are around us day after day can see Christ being fleshed out in us and that we may live to his glory. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all now and forevermore. Amen. <clears throat>